Welcome to Sheer Clarity, the show that will teach you about leadership by attraction, building self-awareness, and how to develop exceptional self-management abilities that will help you become more reflective, more open, more trusting, and more engaging with the people who matter to you most. In other words, make you a better leader. Head on over to SheerClarity.com where you can learn more, subscribe to the show for free, and connect on social media. And now, here's your host, Jay Kevin McHugh. Hi, everyone. This is Jay Kevin McHugh. I am the host of Sheer Clarity. It's a podcast where I talk with top leaders about how to become leaders by attraction. And what does that mean? Well, it means that as that kind of leader, within seconds of meeting you, people believe they can trust you. They sense they can be open. There's no hidden agendas from you. They don't have to hide their agenda. And they know you are intensely committed to helping others succeed. They actually sense with their heart almost immediately that you care. You get this by having sheer clarity, sheer clarity about who you are, how you roll, how you're wired. And this is all underlying emotional intelligence. And the foundation of that is self-awareness on steroids. So that's what we're here to do with this show. And today I have a leader in a different category than the traditional interviews I've done. I'm here with Mike Swiger. Mike is the executive director of True Freedom. There's actually two parts of his enterprise. He has a True Freedom Ministries, an evangelical nonprofit organization that helps people locked in jails and prisons, as well as the homeless and those trapped in addiction. And he's also the head of True Freedom Enterprises, which is a faith-neutral nonprofit that's solely dedicated to prisoner reentry. And he specializes in workforce empowerment and post-release education and transitional housing. I have known Mike for five years. I do serve on his board of True Freedom Ministries. And what I do know is that he is an amazing leader. And like a leader and a prophet, he has the same kind of assignment. He has to cast a vision. He has to wield influence. He has to inspire. He has to motivate. Simultaneously, he has to watch the pocketbook. He has to know how the money rolls. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that comes with that. And on top of that, the place where he does his work in prisons, it has an entire world that opens us to amazing insights. I hope I get a chance during our discussion to share some of the ones that I've had by being in a prison. So we're going to trust that uh, God will lead us through the rest of this conversation. And I'll say hello to Mike Swiger. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Good to be here, Kevin. I don't know if I gave enough information about the organizations, but maybe you can start with just a quick snapshot. And then I really want to find out how you came to be in those organizations leading them. I'd love to. Tell everybody who might be listening what this is about. So true freedom as you mentioned earlier, has two wings. True Freedom Ministries is dedicated to reaching the broken in society. We have five paid staff. We have 150 volunteers who help us do the work. And during the pre-COVID world, we were doing over 200 services, classes, and programs every month within the prison system here in Ohio. Uh, True Freedom Enterprises is much more entrepreneurial. It's focusing on workforce empowerment for prisoners coming home for transitional housing, as you said, and also pre- and post-release education. Separate 501c3, separate board of directors, separate employees, separate volunteers. So in a lot of ways, executive directors sit in the CEO seat with a much lower salary. (laughs) (laughs) Significantly lower. (laughs) Understood. Understood. So I've known you for maybe five or six years now. I met you at a fundraiser and that led to a breakfast. And I was in a place where I 
sort of wanted to do something for the community. And lo and behold, here we are five years later, and I am as committed and in love with this ministry and the organization that is helping prisoners when they're out of prison not to go back. And so I appreciate that opportunity. I think it would be helpful if somebody is listening here, who is this guy Swire and how the heck did he get into this position now. So give me a little bit of your story. Yeah, my background is the non-traditional route into the nonprofit world. As a young man, I was a college student at Case Western Reserve studying engineering. I was involved in management development in the company I was co-oping with at the time. My father was a county commissioner. He had been in office for four terms when I had a major catastrophic event in my life. My older brother was in law school at Temple when he got into a fight and beat to death his college roommate. I helped him move the body, cover up the crime, lie to the police, refuse to cooperate, and ultimately was charged as an accessory. This is in uh, 1989. That event led me to 17 years of incarceration, which was a very transformative season of my life and equipped me to do what I'm doing right now. It wasn't until I was in the county jail doing deep reflection, because when you're in those situations, and I pray most of your listeners have not been, but when you're laying on a bed, contemplating whether or not you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison, it's an opportunity some deep, soul-searching reflection of who I am, how I got there, and where did I want to go from there. In my life, God brought along a series of men who built into my life, mentored me, discipled me, challenged me to grow, stretched me in areas of strength I didn't know I had. And it seemed like as I would close one door to a gentleman who walked me from one step of my life to the next, God brought another and then another. And this happened over the course of 17 years to where I came home in a position to be useful as opposed to being an object of ministry. I was able to reach out to others I left behind. So it's interesting you talked about self-reflection because when I'm coaching executives, one of the prime areas that I focus on is how much time they spend in reflection. And the truth is most of them don't spend much time at all because if you're in the high performer category in the business world, you're busy performing and you're getting to the next level. And most of the folks I work with are working 70 hours a week. And now it's 24 seven, to be honest with you, for some of them. And they're building something called a successful business, a big enterprise, and they're scaling it and growing it. And I find they just don't take time to reflect. And so on the emotional intelligence scale, one of the first parts of it is self-awareness, and that is equivalent to self-reflection. So do you remember in that first several months, you know, after you're in and it's sinking in, I'm here and I might be here for a long time. What was your brain saying? Yeah, very distinctly do I remember just as a kind of a preface to that, I've been home for 15 years. I was in for 17. So I've spent almost a balanced amount of my adult life, both incarcerated and not incarcerated. You know, running True Freedom, we're Ohio's largest prison ministry, we're like the third largest in the United States. So I have a lot of the executive functions that keep me busy now. I have to make lots of decisions, lots of pressures, lots of presentations, always pushing the organization forward, which, as you mentioned, doesn't leave a lot of time for self-reflection, especially when you factor in having a wife and children, a life outside of work, it's very busy. Now, prior to that, when I was incarcerated, uh, life moves very, very slowly. And when you're locked in a cell and there's no television set and you're left in your own skin, you're forced to think. Right. 
early on in my incarceration, I remember laying in bed thinking, how did I get myself here? Why did I do the things I did? You know, I certainly knew better. I had every opportunity to tell the truth. I could have taken several opportunities to get immunity if I would have only done the right thing and testified, but I chose not to. So it took me a deep reflection to see who I am and why I did what I did in order to change those things so that if ever put in a position, I would not make those same mistakes again. I remember coming across the book that was written in the 1960s. Someone had donated to our prison library, and it was called Healing for Damaged Emotions. And it was a phenomenal book on self-reflection. It walked you through major catastrophic events in your life, how you responded to them, and then how do you heal from them. And I, I dug into that book very deeply. And that really helped me get some perspective on who I am. I also very intentionally studied leadership. Before going to prison, I was usually in positions of leadership. You know, I was a class president through high school and into college. I was a captain of a football team, captain of the track team. I was always in that leadership position. And doing the same types of things in prison, I decided if I was a strength of mine, I wanted to be able to harness it and develop it. Right. It's interesting when you talked about the healing of damaged emotions. I'll recommend this to anybody who's listening. I just read a book while away for a few days called The Choice. And was written by a psychologist, a woman by the name of Dr. Edith Eager, and it's E-G-E-R. She was a Holocaust survivor, went to the camps when she was 16, and recounts that story of just watching her mother being pointed to the left, and she and her sisters to the right. And they said, don't worry, you'll see them soon, having no idea what was happening the survival of what that was and the pain of that. And she did survive, and she went on to get a PhD in psychology somewhere in her 50s and then went into the field of helping people handle and heal their emotions. And the reason it's called The Choice is that her moral of the story was everyone eventually will be victimized by something. There will be a wounding. It might be a mild wound, a scrape on the knee, or it might be something as horrific as this Holocaust experience. But she said, you don't have a choice about that. However, you do have a choice about what you're going to do going forward and how you're going to look at that and how you're going to treat that. And the people who end up locked in the resentments and the anger and the pain and the torture and victimhood struggle forever to have any kind of life, even though they have had trauma. So that's been her goal, is to lead people through how to look at that and heal that and come away with, I can acknowledge the victimization, the events, the pain, And I can also make a choice about how I choose to live. So I recommend it to anyone. But in your case, you just listed in a nutshell the big questions. Who am I? How did I get here? And then you ask the big why question. When you look back on it now, what would you answer? Who was that guy? And why did he end up where he did? In that moment, now that you've had that distance down the road, you know? Do you remember what? I do. I do. I can remember thinking at this time, being in my mid-20s, 
looking back at the 19-year-old who put me in prison to think, who is that kid? Well, I, can, I understood why. And the why was I had no moral compass. I was a person who did whatever thought was right at that moment. A better way of putting that, what was most expedient to my advantage in that moment. So I had no set of principles to live by. I was just very situational in my ethics and felt justified in it. And when you get to the logical conclusion of that in prison and you realize this doesn't work practically, it was a true spiritual awakening that, that in my mind when I first became a Christian while in prison, God instilled in me a set of absolutes. And those absolutes became the foundation for making decisions in my life. And it allowed me to have a framework by which I saw the whole world. And for me as a young man who had grown up without any type of religious or spiritual upbringing, it was like I was drastically nearsighted. And all of a sudden, someone put glasses on me and I saw the world clearly for the first time. So looking back as a young man, I, I knew why I got there. I was an amoral person. And it wasn't until that awakening that I realized who I was, then how do I live from here? How do I go forward from here? You said something interesting about Dr. Egger's book, because I deal with this in prison a lot. I speak in prisons around the, the state of Ohio on a regular basis, very large crowds of prisoners. And I know everyone's case history having never met them before. 80% of people in prison have never had a father in their home. Most have a drug or alcohol problem. Most have been victimized, either physically abused, sexually abused. Most are high school dropouts. So I know they've had a very difficult life. So when I go through and begin talking to the crowd, the first thing I'll do is acknowledge that, is that you guys had a very rough life. That's why you're here. But you can choose from this point forward to use that as an excuse to keep failing or to take control of your life and say, it was unfair, but here's where I'm at. From this point forward, though, I take control, and I'm responsible for what happens to me next. Until you get to that position, especially in prisons, but also I think in life where you realize I am in control of my own destiny, I make decisions, I make things happen in my life. Life doesn't happen to me as a victim. I'm an influencer. You get trapped. Yeah. You know, as you were talking about this idea of victimization and things happening, I couldn't help but have it pop into my mind where we are right now as a country, as a globe, as a world, all facing this pandemic, like unknown to anyone before this, these conditions. And then we have men and women in positions they were elected to, to care for and defend the constitution, et cetera, et cetera making decisions for us. And we as citizens are reacting and responding all out of our control, all out of our control. And the variety of reactions has got to be significant. What I was curious, maybe you can tell us more about how that has affected the prison world. Because ever since I became involved, I have to confess, I never really thought about prisons or prisoners let alone actually begin to understand and care about the whole situation. They were just an out of, weren't in my mind. Yeah. So I am now. And so why don't you maybe tell us a little bit, because COVID is here, it's relevant. And the people that are leading in companies, organizations, in all systems are having to handle and react to this. So I'm curious, A, how has this affected the organization and the ministry and the prisons? And what are you as a leader sort of taking away about what you've been doing and what you've been learning? This goes back to what you said earlier. We don't get to choose our crises in life. 
things happen, but we get to choose our responses. Uh, COVID was not brought on by any type of political decision by any of our leaders, but it came here. And now we can see how people are responding differently. So in our sphere, in the prison system, prisons are a very big hotbed for the spread uh, just under nursing homes with uh, the amount of contagiousness inside of institutions because you can't physically and socially separate inside of an institution. Most prisons are not what you see on TV where there's prison cells and people are separated. They're typically rows and rows and rows of bunk beds with people three feet on each side of you and someone three or four feet below you. So it's impossible social distance. So the prison system in Ohio, uh, like across the country, shut down all non-essential activities, including education and programming within the prison system. So it's really right now only security, custody, and medical is allowed into the prison system. So we lost our whole access to our mission field initially. We've been leveraging technology to be able to get back to our folks by, we send DVDs in, we're doing interactive, like in a Zoom platform to do classes and programs, but those are still six to eight people socially distant, which makes it very difficult. As an organization, we're adjusting as we can. We're trying to uh, touch the people we have access to. One thing we just did just yesterday, we did a staff appreciation event at six institutions because we have access to the staff and the guards that they come in and out of the prison. So we're able to greet them and give them a small gift to say, hey, we're thinking about you. Thank you for being a first-line responder, even though you don't get to be on the news like the other first responders. So we're touching those we still have access to. We're focusing on the fields, uh, people who are already out of prison, who are looking for jobs, looking for support. We're focusing deeply on those. We still have access to them. And we're just kind of responding to each next opportunity that God brings our way. Yeah. As a leader, are you thinking about how you're supposed to respond? I mean, how has it changed you? What has it done with you? Because I, I know anybody who's out there, whether you're a supervisor of a small team of five or six people, and you know, you're know you busy on your Zoom calls, probably Zoom exhausted by now, and all the way up through the organization, everybody in some position who's responsible for others has got to figure out how am I going to address them? How am I going to handle it? And I'd be curious if you have any lessons or tips or insights that you've used or found to make this work. Yeah, for sure. It's been a challenge. We went through a season of eight years of unprecedented growth in our organization. We were growing at 25% a year financially. Donations were growing. The number of people touched was growing. So we were experiencing exponential growth year after year after year after year. And this was the first year that stopped, and it stopped immediately on March 15th. So for me as a leader, it was an earth-shattering event because I'm still responsible for, at the time, 10 full-time employees, five part-time employees, 150 volunteers. They're all looking to me for stability. They're fearful about their jobs. They're fearful about their future. They're fearful about the opportunity to use their gifts and talents. And unlike the for-profit world, in the nonprofit sector, we don't make widgets. We can't increase our sales. We can't cut our expenses and go on sale for what we offer to try to keep revenues flowing. We are strictly at the mercy of those who financially support us. And when you're going through these catastrophic times, the first thing that stops is additional giving. Yeah, so when COVID hit for us, we had gone through a season of unprecedented growth. We were growing about 25% a year through revenues and through output for our ministries. And all of a sudden it stopped. So for me, in a nonprofit, I didn't have the capacity to have a sale on what we offer 
to increase our revenues because we're really at the at the, the mercy of people who financially support us. When you go through major economic upheavals, the first thing that stops is giving beyond people's standard. So for us, to this point, we're doing fine, but nonprofits tend to lag four to six months behind the economy. So uh, we won't see a drop off in giving to the end of the year, and then it'll continue. The worst on. is yet to come. Yeah. <laughs> It is. So we're preparing for that. So we've done the same things you see a lot of companies do. We've trimmed expense where we can. We've eliminated some staff who are ready to retire anyways. We didn't replace them this season. So we're becoming as lean as possible and we're trying to batten down the hatches financially to survive. But we suspect it's going to be another six months of difficulty financially. You know, you said a couple of things there that maybe might be helpful if somebody's listening and you're looking for some kind of tip to take out of this. You use the word stability and people as a leader um, are in a position to represent to people the reassurance, um, the kind of confidence that we'll get through this, we'll find a way. I have clients who've done amazing things for their employees to keep them on board, to comfort them, to support them. I'm sure long after this is passed, there'll be a lot of stories we're sharing about leaders stepping up. So if you have even five or four or three or two people who report to you, the one thing you can do directly as their direct supervisor is to continuously be a, a rock of reassurance. If you don't lose your cool and let them know you're there for them, you got their backs and you're going to do your best and also have the confidence that we'll get through this. Indeed. Whether it's a football team or the CEO of a company, when a crisis hits, everyone looks at the guy on top to make sure he's still under control. And I have two employees who each have seven children each. Both of those guys, especially early on, were looking to me for reassurance that they're still going to have a job and we're still going to take care of their families. And as a group, we're going to be okay. I've looked at very intentionally trying to reassure our staff and our supporters and our board members that we have this under control. The things that are under our control that we can control, we are. And the things not we're trusting for, but we're not being foolish with that either. We're trying to be as wise as possible. I'm just being reminded of a part of the book, Good to Great, which is, you know, it's getting old now. It's got to be 15, 18 years ago, but it's still a business classic. There's something in there called the Stockdale Paradox. And it was based on a story of an admiral, Jim Stockdale, who got shot down in Vietnam, went to the Hanoi Hilton, and he survived. And when they asked him, how did you survive while others died? And he said, it was this weird, hence the paradox, I had a continuous fundamental belief that I was going to survive. I would be home one day. And simultaneously, I absolutely faced the reality of my situation. I did not build hopes up on false hopes. And he talked a little bit about the guys who were having hopes that were not realistic. You know, it's going to be Christmas in two months. I'm, they won't let us be here another day past Christmas. Christmas would come and grow. And he said, eventually, some of the people may not have survived more from a broken heart than from the physical stability. And so it was important, essentially, to believe fundamentally we are going to be okay. But also be rational about it. 
I see this in prison a lot. And you've met a couple of these gentlemen at Lorraine Correctional, gentlemen doing life in prison, life without parole, who are planning to come home in a month or six months from now. And there's no rational roadmap that allows it to happen, but they're still believing that there's going to be a miraculous intervention and all of a sudden out of the sky will come a release. And then when that doesn't happen, it's devastating. Yeah. I just came for a gentleman who I've been working with for a number of years now, who you met, who was in our small group at Lorraine, who came to the realization that he's finally going to probably do the rest of his life in prison. And he stopped going from false hope to false hope, then living through that crushing despair that comes afterwards and realize this is my life. I need to accept it on its terms. I can still hope for a miracle, but I'm going to live in the now. Right, right. It's okay to hope for a miracle. It's not okay to hope for a miracle and not live in a face-to-face confrontation with the compelling reality is. Yep, indeed. And who am I going to be in that? So I could see what Stockdale was saying, where if you build up the false hope and then it gets crushed, it takes life out of you. So being able to live life on its terms, my sentence was 21 to 50 years, and I didn't have to come home. I always believed that I would, but I did every day trying to prepare for when that day would come so I could be as equipped as possible to succeed when I came home. At the same time, I knew when the benchmarks were, so I lived towards the next benchmark. What was that like? Did you end up with some false hopes from moment to moment as to when you were going to get out? Did you ever have that happen to you? Not because you did it, but because the system did it. And when you finally did get out or actually you knew, like, did you not believe it until the (laughs) door shut and you were in the car? I want to hear more about that. Yeah, it wasn't, in my case, false hopes. Three years into my sentence, I was eligible for release. My attorney filed a motion to the sentencing judge and the judge granted my release. I received legal mail with my release date of September 1st, 1993. So in my case, it wasn't false hope. I had a legitimate foundation for it. So I had sent my stuff home. I was waiting for that day to come. And the day before, on August 30th, I got a knock on my cell door. And there was a guy in the cell next to me. And he said, do you have something pending in court? And I said, yeah, how did you know? He said, I heard on the radio it was denied. I thought, well, that can't be true. Why would it be on the radio? But they did make a movie out of our case. So I thought maybe it was on the radio. So I went and called my lawyer. And the lawyer said, I don't know what to tell you. The judge overturned her own decision and the prosecutor didn't even file a motion to oppose us. Your next chance to come home is 10 more years. So it was a a devastating blow of having to call my mom and say, don't come get me tomorrow. It's got to be another decade. That moment of time was a very defining point. For me, I remember going back to my cell, trying to process this information, and I had trained myself to read the Bible during count times, and you get counted four times at regular intervals throughout the course of the day when you're in prison, and I did not want to pick up the Bible. I felt that I was being treated unfairly. I thought the system was unfair. I was mad at God. I was mad at the system, and I picked up the Bible because I trained myself to do it, and the reading for the day was uh, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 12. It starts out, count it all joy, my brothers. When you face fiery trials, because the trying of your faith works patience. And I did not want patience. I didn't want a crown of life. I wanted to go home. Yeah. I kind of had the same challenge when my first wife passed away from cancer. You want me to count the joy? Really? Count this as joy? Well, yeah. Now I can look back. It's 18 years and I can see where he was working and what he was doing. Indeed. And... I have what I would call miraculous recovery. You know, I don't think that many people I know have had 
a true loving partner marriage like I have had. And right now, I could have imagined that I would be back in love with Mary the way I am. It's an amazing thing. So my hope now is I think I might sustain a few more blows before it's done. Uh, <laughs> I don't want one. Thank you very much. But I do see it. There may be people listening who don't necessarily have familiarity or share Christian worldview, and that's okay, you know, because the one thing I know about it is that the transformation for those of us who are puts our hearts in a position to love everyone, period, where they are. It's actually a commandment to do so. We don't pull it off perfectly because we're still kind of messed up, but I try to approach it that way. There's one other thing I think I wanted to get out just for myself to share with anybody who's listening. I spent a lot of time on emotional intelligence. And when I had my first visit to prison, it was with you. Yeah. Actually, maybe you could set that up because I was shocked when it happened, but I'd like you to tell it from your side. Sure. What were you thinking when, when you invited this new guy who's said, yeah, I'm a volunteer, bring me along? <laughs> yeah, well, most people don't realize a very large segment of our population is incarcerated right now. You know, 2.5 million Americans are in jail right now, jail or in prisons. And it's hard for people to really get their mind around what it looks like. You know, most people's worldview of prison is what you see on TV or in the movies, and those things aren't true. So I love bringing people into prison for the first time. It helps me be able to see my world through their lens. So in the situation with you, since you were involved in the organization, and I knew this group of guys I was going to introduce you to would certainly identify to you, that you would be able to have an impact on them. There's 29 prisons in Ohio, so I, I asked you to come to Larian Correctional to meet with a group of guys all doing life in prison without parole. It's a program we call Life Change for Lifers, and to get in that class, you have to have letters in your sentence, not numbers. But I've worked with these guys for about 10 years already, so it was a very intimate group, and you were the outsider coming in. So I wanted you to come in without a lot of setup just to let you interact with them. So I didn't tell you what I was going to do no, you did uh, when we got to the room. We got in a circle. There was about 12 gentlemen there, all who had done at least 10 years in prison. And I turned to Kevin and said, all right, Kevin, it's on you. Take, Take over. It away. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had no idea that was going to happen. That was a super shocker. And I know what I did. I fell back on my career. And my career has been spent working largely with the Young President's Organization. And they have these small, intimate groups, eight to 10 CEOs to get together every month. Some of them will meet for 20 years and they just age out together and they become a highly intimate and thoroughly connected and loving and caring group of people who have no other reason to be together other than we were strangers and now here's where we are. And so one of our favorite, or one of my questions I like to ask, because my job was to help them be more open than there used to be. I would say, so what, what would you tell yourself when you were 20 or what would you, you know, look back on your life and what advice would you give yourself? And I asked that question to the whole group and I put a parameter on it. First, I said it was 12 or 13. I said, if you had a, you know, like two or three 12 or 13-year-old children and you had to tell them the one thing that you knew now, 
about your heart and you only had one minute to do it, what would you tell them? I still have the sheet. I brought it with me and I want to read a couple of these. So these are folks who are in prison. They're going to be there for the rest of their lives. Some of them have been there 20 or 30 years. And I asked them, what do you know now about the human heart that you would tell a a 12 or 13 year old? Here's a couple of them. Treat your heart like a garden. You must watch what's planted there. You must discern the weeds from the flowers. Make sure you pull the weeds and get rid of them. Another one said, you have to protect your garden, protect it from the world. Another one said, apart from Jesus, you just simply can't follow the world because when you do, the world says, follow your heart. But his point was, where is your identity? Because your identity is going to tell you where your heart goes. So his point was your identity in Christ was so essential to him so that you know your true heart. And there was one other one that I wanted to find. Here it is on the sheet. He said, your heart is everything. Nothing else matters. Indeed. I'm like, wow. So I spent my life trying to teach emotional intelligence to highly paid, highly successful, high intellect, highly educated leaders. And I got more deep, granular understanding of emotional intelligence in that room than I have almost any other time. And it comes back to what you stated, the first question you asked me is, what do you think about when you have that time to examine your own hearts? And these guys, to a man, have spent years in very confined areas thinking about themselves, asking the same questions I asked myself. Why am I here? If I could go back and do this differently, what would I do? If I can go back to that one moment in time that would change my destiny, what would I do? And those guys have all thought those things through and have been able to come to a good answer. And the other thing, too, you talked about the Young Presidents group. Very similar. These guys are all together, not by choice. They know each other intimately. But and here's a different way, though. I suspect in the Young Presidents group, the worst thing that each of those gentlemen or women have ever done isn't being discussed around the lunch table. But in prison, the one thing in common is everyone's there because they got caught doing the one thing they're most ashamed of, and everyone knows what it is. So it takes a level of vulnerability to be able to sit in those circles when everyone knows the worst thing about you. Wow, that's powerful. And it resonates with me because I know when I do management retreats, I do try to get people to share at a level of discomfort. I call it stretching your discomfort with vulnerability to share something that you just don't commonly share. And when they do, you can feel the temperature in the room change and you can feel the connectivity in the room change. And when I see two people at it in an executive setting, you know, I don't trust this guy and I'm going to take this guy's head off or somebody violated the subordinate supervisor relationship. And I see all kinds of stuff. I always ask him, I said, well, what do you actually know about that other person? How do you know that you maybe aren't reminding them of some 
horrible experience in your past, which is actually triggering you. What's their story? I get people to tell their stories to each other. I can see them warm up and they begin to connect at the heart because that's to the point one of those guys said, that's all that matters. And I just had a podcast last week with a guy named Keith Alper who wrote a book called From Like to Love. And he's made it a part of his way of leading to love his employees and to walk that talk and to teach that and to believe in that. And they've become lovers of each other. And guess who gets to benefit? The clients all day long. Everybody's running around to make somebody else happy. We're in the service business. And so it changes everything. Well, this is amazing. We're coming to the end of our time. I think what I'd ask you to do perhaps is look back at your life and imagine only one person is listening and they need to hear something that is comforting and reassuring and encouraging. What would you tell them? I would say don't wait to come to the answers to those most profound questions. Most people put those major life-changing questions. Why am I here? Where am I going? What's my purpose on earth? To another season, when I'm not so busy, I'll address that. Or maybe when things slow down, I'll think about those matters. Because those things, as the one gentleman said, your heart is everything. That defines who your heart is. If you don't know who you are, why you're here and where you're going, you're kind of just doing the next busy thing that comes along. You don't have a purpose or a focus or a goal in your life. And here's one thing for sure. If if you don't have a target, you'll never hit it. So in my case, it took a massive tragedy for me to be able to sit down long enough to, to reflect on those life's most ultimate meaningful questions and find the answer. And finding those answers is what's brought me peace and sincerity and authenticity through the next 30 years of my life. Right. Who am I and why am I here? Where am I headed? This is amazing. Well, what a great interview. Thank you, Mike Swiger. Would you tell folks about the website where they can go learn about true freedom? And and I have zero hesitation asking people to go out there and see what the organization does. And if it's on your heart to donate, I would dearly appreciate that. So why don't you tell them where we can find you? Absolutely. Please go to our website at truefreedomministries.net. A lot of videos that display the different things that we do. We are very much a volunteer-driven organization. As I mentioned earlier, we have over 150 volunteers. And it doesn't matter what your skill set is, what your time availability is. If you are interested in getting involved, we'll find a place where you can use your gifts and talents. But thank you very much for thinking of us. Thank you for having me on your show today. And discussing these things are so near and dear to my heart. And this has been a privilege. But yes, truefreedomministries.net is our website. Perfect. Well, that will wrap up this episode of Sheer Clarity. I really appreciate your listening. You can find Sheer Clarity on all the various platforms out there. And you can also check it out on my website. It's jkevinmchugh.com. And if you liked what you heard here, I'd love for you to go online and uh, give us a couple of stars or thumbs up or whatever's out there and also share it with your friends via social media. We'll say goodbye for now. Can't wait for our next interview.